0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. All right, welcome to our additional or supplemental or adjunctive program of Radio Parallax, we had a lot of extra material which uh, did not fit into our talk with Andy Jones or Isaac Stonefish and may not fit into our talk with Stephen J. Harper, although we will talk about some of this same stuff I'm going to start with here. Uh, but we need some extra time to, to go into some archival material. It's pretty clear that Hiram Johnson, former California governor, was correct when he said that in war the first casualty is the truth because we've seen just an incredible amount of propaganda being thrown around. As far as this correspondent's concerned, uh, Russia and propaganda go together like a hand in glove. It's sort of legendary in uh, in war reporting, or foreign reporting, I guess you'd say, that um, sometimes the story is highly propagandistic. A classic case in point was how... Stalin's famine in Ukraine got covered back in the 1930s. I've gone to the web to pull up a, um, a report that the Guardian republished last month from what they originally published in March of 1933. They put forth a series of articles about the holodomor or death by hunger that was unleashed on Ukraine as part of Stalin's drive to collectivize farming across the Soviet Union. They published a series of reports by Malcolm Muggeridge, and they published them anonymously so that he would not face retribution from pro-Soviet people in the West. I remember Malcolm Muggeridge from my youth. He was a fellow that uh, Jack Parr found amusing and would bring him on to talk about stuff. And this, We're talking like, must be mid-60s. At the dawn of the 60s, I was in elementary school. Anyway, I want to excerpt from that, but before I do that, I want to take a look at more contemporaneous reporting related to Ukraine. Dana Milibank put an article in in the Washington Post, an opinion piece titled, I tried Trump's truth social, so you don't have to. And I need to quote from this. There's almost nothing I wouldn't do for you, dear reader. And this week, in your behalf, I made a painful sacrifice. I joined truth social, so you don't have to. I endured weeks on the waiting list for the Donald Trump created Devin Noon's run attempt at a Twitter killer. And I suffered through a series of technical glitches. But eventually, I gained access. As a result, I've come into being in possession of the following new pieces of information about the war in Ukraine. Are you ready? Okay, one, Hunter Biden is involved in building and running biolabs in the country. Two, the CIA and NIH are both deeply involved. In the Ukrainian biolabs. Three, Russia's invasion of Ukraine was set in motion by a CIA false flag operation funded by George Soros. Four, the COVID-19 pathogen originated not in China, but in a village in Ukraine. Yes, folks, this, 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 is, this is what Donald Trump and Devin Nunes are putting out as truth related to what's going on in Ukraine right now. And there's more. Five, Ukrainian neo-Nazis controlled the Ukrainian city of Mariupol before the Russians invaded. And seven, Russia's alleged war crimes were staged. I think we can stop there. This is the kind of pro-Russian, pro-Putin propaganda that's being put out by Donald Trump, Devin Nunes, and company. Occupy Democrats put out some some uh, commentary that's well. It's also a bit propagandistic, but I'd say a little more accurate than what you've just heard. They put a comparison up of Putin and Trump, noting Putin wanted to weaken NATO. Trump tried to weaken NATO. Putin wanted Ukraine's military weakened. Trump withheld military aid for 55 days. Putin wanted U.S. intelligence. Trump gave U.S. intelligence. Putin wanted U.S. sanctions on Russia lifted. Trump lifted U.S. sanctions on Russia. Putin wanted U.S. to withdraw from nuclear arms treaty. Trump withdrew U.S. from nuclear arms treaty. Anyone see a pattern here? A few weeks back in this program, we went through some of Trump's statements uh, about what's going on in Ukraine and what what Putin is up to. We're not going to go through all of it again, but, you know, we would remind you that back in 2014, that Trump took Russia's side when the conflict began there in Crimea— Within weeks of that invasion back in 2014, Trump praised Putin for how he handled the takeover of Crimea and predicted, quote, that the rest of Ukraine will fall fairly quickly. Echoing Kremlin propaganda, Trump said in a TV interview at that time that Crimean people would rather be with Russia, a position he also pushed in private. In 2016, one of his campaign aides falsely claimed that Russia did not seize Crimea. CNN quoted Elena Putikova, a Kiev-based business intelligence firm, saying that Trump said that Crimea is Russian because people speak Russian, which is absolutely a pro-Kremlin view. According to this logic, she said, the entire territory of the United States should belong to Great Britain. We'd further remind you within Russian-backed separatists, yes, it was Russian-backed separatists in eastern Ukraine that shot down that Malaysian airline commercial jetliner, killing 298 people. Trump so doubt about Russia's involvement. He embraced Putin's denials even after U.S. and European officials publicly concluded that Russia was complicit. It's worth noting that according to the Mueller report, Trump's campaign manager Paul Manafort, who'd spent a decade advising Viktor Yanukovych in Ukraine, collaborated in 2016 with a Russian spy in a secret plan for Trump to help Russia control eastern Ukraine. That proposal envisioned that Yanukovych would return to lead a Russian puppet state in eastern Ukraine. These are things to remember about Trump, Ukraine, and Putin, among, among many. Well, let's, let's, let's reverse tape here and go back to Hunter Biden, which, according to Trump's website, is involved in building and running bio labs in Ukraine. I was stunned to see in the week magazine, not this current issue but the one before, uh, a headline noting that Hunter Biden, colon, the laptop really was his. That's what they're saying. More correctly, some of the data that was pulled off the hard drive on the laptop appears to genuinely have been correspondence from Hunter Biden. Whether there's other alterations involved in this and more monkey business remains to be seen. Although Rupert Murdoch seemed to be pretty convinced through the Wall Street Journal and Fox News that this was proof that there was something funny about what Hunter Biden was, was doing in Ukraine. So far, they've been unable to tie his father, President Joseph Biden, to any of this. Now I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this 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 laptop story because it's just it's just too bloody weird. The story is that Biden goes to a uh, a computer repair location, drops off his computer, and then forgets about it. Afterwards, the Delaware computer repair store owner John Paul McIsaac decides he's going to turn this over to some appropriate people, like the Rupert Murdoch, like the Rupert Murdoch-owned New York Post, like Rudy Giuliani. Like Steve Bannon, so it, it doesn't really seem to pass the smell test on on, on the first uh, on the first pass. Writing in the Washington Post, Philip Bump said journalists had every reason to approach this story with caution, saying when the Rupert Murdoch-owned Post reported it had data from the laptop three weeks before the 2020 election, what great timing. It came after former President Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, spent months openly digging in Ukraine for, quote, dirt, unquote, about Hunter that might damage his father. The Post refused to let other media organizations examine the data, and no one could explain why the owner of the repair shop gave it to Rudy Giuliani. They added, given Russians' interference in the 2016 election, mainstream media understandably responded with suspicion. Rest assured, we'll ask Stephen Harper a little bit about this on next week's program. Let's go back to 1933, just to see how, how badly things can be reported on in the press. 1931, Walter Duranti, writing for the New York Times and the Soviet Union, wins a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting on how swimmingly things are going under Joseph Stalin. He apparently saw no evidence of a famine, or at least his Soviet minders didn't, didn't, didn't show him any evidence of a famine. Meanwhile, Malcolm Muggeridge, who did not win a Pulitzer, went looking around at what was going on in the Ukraine, and here's what he reported. In Rostov, I had a letter of introduction which I presented and found myself in a large car with a guide. There we're building new government offices eight stories high. There a new theater and opera house to seat 3,000. Living quarters behind for the actors. Here's a new factory that three years ago didn't exist. Blocks of flats for the workers, latest machinery and sanitation, said Mugridge. I began to forget the desolation of the North Caucasus and the group of peasants being lined up in military formation on a cold railway platform in the very early morning. Showmanship, the most characteristic product of the age, worked its magic. Have you got bread here in Rostov? I asked weakly. Bread? Of course we've got bread. As much as we can eat. It was not true, but they had a certain amount of bread. One might go all over Russia like this, I thought, on a wave of showmanship. It explains something that has often puzzled me. How is it that so many obvious and fundamental facts about Russia are not noticed even by serious and intelligent visitors? Take, for instance, the most obvious and fundamental fact of all. There is not 5% of the population whose standard of life is equal to or nearly equal to that of the unemployed in Europe, who are on the lowest scale of relief. I make this statement advisedly, having checked out on the basis of the family budgets in Mr. Fenner Brockway's recent book, Hungry England, which certainly does not err on the side of being too optimistic. In the evening, I joined a crowd in the street. It was drifting up and down while a policeman blew his whistle. Some of the people in the crowd were hoarding fragments of food, inconsiderable fragments that in an ordinary way a housewife would throw out or give to the cat. Others were examining these fragments of food. Every now and then an exchange took place. I dined with a number of communists. They were so friendly and sincere. About this peasant business, I asked. They smiled, having an answer already. As the factories were in the 1920s, so now are the farms. We've built up heavy industry. The next task is agriculture. Fifteen collective farm workers have gone to Moscow to conference. Comrade Stalin will address them. This year, we plan to plant as many hectares, which will produce so many pods of grain. The next year, dot, dot, dot. Are you quite sure I wanted to ask that the parallel is correct? Factories and land. Isn't agriculture somehow more sensitive, lending itself less to a statistical treatment? Will people torn up by the roots make things grow and if you drive them into fields at the end of a rifle? It is impossible, however, to argue against a general idea as an algebraic formula. In Kiev, Mugridge went out to a collective farm. How are things, I asked. Bad, the woman answered. Why? Only potatoes and millet to eat since August. No bread or meat? None. Were things better before you joined the collective farm? Much better. Why did you join then? Oh, I don't know. Her husband came in. I told the man I was interested in collective farms, and he was ready to talk. I was a poor peasant, he said, with a hectare and a half of land. I thought things would be better for me on a collective farm. Well, were they? He laughed. No, not at all. Much worse. Worse than before the revolution? He laughed again. Oh, much, much worse. Before the revolution, we had a cow and something to feed it with. Plenty of bread, meat sometimes. Now, nothing but potatoes and millet. Anyway, Mugridge found himself in the middle of this effort to collectivized farming in Ukraine. Ukraine was the breadbasket of the Russian empire. It's still a major producer of wheat. But when things weren't going well, Stalin decided to kill two birds with one stone, which was punish the Ukrainians for their resistance. The people who were rather more prosperous among the farmers were labeled kulaks, supposedly rich peasants, and they were punished, put on the collective farms. Their wheat was collected and then sent back to the rest of Russia. Several million people died in this famine. The Ukrainians have never forgotten it, nor should they. And yet it took decades for these reports of the famine to eventually be confirmed by the Soviet government from secret files. And at this point in time, I'm not qualified to tell you whose reports need, need to be believed when it comes to reporting from Ukraine. But I'm pretty sure that near the bottom of the list of people you can trust would be official Russian government sources. But it does appear that fact-checkers are working overtime to try and sort this all out. An article in New Scientist magazine from their March 19th issue took a look at this. Under the headline, How to Fight Disinformation, the magazine noted that non-governmental organizations, researchers, social media platforms, and journalists are calling out disinformation about the Russian invasion of Ukraine as it spreads across the internet. They do so using a combination of high-tech tools, intuition, and plenty of practice. There are two basic strategies pursued by organizations that aim to seek out and debunk disinformation, according to Al Baker at Logically, an AI-powered fact-checking organization, which gives us pause. They're located in the UK. The magazine notes that finding disinformation as it's created involves trawling through the murkier parts of the digital world. They quote Al Baker of Logically, As saying there are elements of the internet where all people do is share things that are obviously false. And no, we don't believe he was referring to Donald Trump's truth social. But maybe he was, I don't know. Baker did point to groups on messaging app Telegram that are affiliated with QAnon, saying, You don't want to spend your time combing through these channels and debunking every single thing. A more targeted approach is sensible, tackling disinformation as it breaks out of those niche communities into the mainstream experts do note that this invasion in Ukraine isn't the first war associated with uh, the issue of fake news, obviously. Researchers and think tanks have monitored online propaganda in other recent conflicts like Syria and Libya, but New Scientist notes it's characterized by a much larger wave of false information. New Scientist said cyber warfare and nuclear issues have been the subject of this magazine's reporting for decades As this issue went to press, this was the March 19th issue, there was concern that two other threats we have followed closely over the years, biological and chemical weapons, might be deployed in spreading disinformation that the U.S. has been developing biological armaments in Ukraine. Wow, what do you know? That seemed to have turned up on the Trump website. And Hunter Biden was at the center of it. Yes, may we remind you what we started the last show with, at least in our good, bad, and ugly section, which is that Donald Trump is openly seeking help from Vladimir Putin on digging up dirt on Hunter Biden. I guess that's so we can put it in his truth social media site. What's perhaps remarkable about about all this is that at this point in time anyway, Vladimir Putin doesn't seem to be willing to stoop that low. Mr. Ruhl points out he, he is a bit busy right now. I guess we have to return back to that question of how much treason are we willing to take out of this guy? The former president of the United States is openly collaborating with the Russian president to, quote, dig up dirt, unquote, on the son of the current president in order to discredit him politically. By the way, he wants to be president yet again. What in the hell is the matter with our judicial system? Now, I I do receive correspondences from Supposedly, Joseph Biden and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and quite a few Democrats asking for financial support to help them fight the efforts to eliminate democracy in America. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, I, I did on occasion throw them a bone. And man, are they after me now? We're a little more comfortable, you know, throwing money in the direction of Greg Palast and other people we know are in the trenches. But FYI, here's the sort of thing I get sent from, quote, Nancy Pelosi, unquote. The denial of full and free and fair elections is the most un-American thing that any of us can imagine. President Joe Biden. The article then, in complete sentences and paragraphs, then asks for my help. Let us contrast this with <laughs> what people are being sent from Donald Trump Jr. A friend of mine's late father was sent, uh, sent this item and she forwarded it to me. Don Jr. has has sent a poll out to people to see how they feel, supposedly, before they send him money. And here's some of the questions that he asks. I want to warn you right now, some of these are a bit leading questions. Like, number one, do you think Pelosi's Democrats should be punished for wanting to repeal the Trump tax cuts, which brought more jobs and bigger paychecks to working families nationwide? You get to answer yes, no, or unsure. Number three, do you think it's fair to describe every Democrat in Congress as a socialist? I like number five, do you believe Democrats deliberately shut down the economy last year as a way to hurt my father's reelection campaign? I missed that one completely. How about number 11? Should Republicans continue to push to bring more freedom, not more government, into our health care system so your premiums can come down? That one surprised me. I didn't realize my premiums would come down if they would just bring more freedom into the health care system. And how about number 21, the final one? Do you think Biden's botched Afghanistan withdrawal was a moment of great shame to our country? The funny thing is, Don doesn't say one word about Trump's botched Afghanistan withdrawal. Anyway, we need to lighten things up here as we close. So, Mr. why don't we hit our reserves of the good, the bad, and the ugly? (laughs) All right, according to The Week magazine, it was a good week a few weeks back. Well, I'd say sort of a good week a few weeks back for the makers of Milk Duds. When it was revealed that Harvey Weinstein, currently jailed in Los Angeles County, got busted with smuggled Milk Duds in his cell, Variety reported that jail officials believe that the contraband candy was smuggled in by a lawyer. Boy, wouldn't you want a bit of fly on the wall for that conversation? Harvey, we think we can smuggle some stuff into you. Is there anything you want us to bring you? Yeah. And a few weeks back, well, we have to include a bad week for affordable housing with the news that the 105,000-square-foot Bel Air, California, mega-mansion known as The One sold to Fashion Nova CEO Richard sold to Fashion Nova CEO Richard Sahagian last week for $126 million at a bankruptcy option. This was a huge discount from its $295 million listing price. That's you know it's, it's much more affordable. A real estate analyst said that it was the lack of Russian billionaires in the market that may have contributed to the tepid bidding on The One. And it was an ugly week, not too long ago for ugliness, with the report was described as a five-foot-two portly 66-year-old Indian man allegedly duped at least 27 younger women into marrying him. Yes, Bibhu Prakash Swain pretended to be a well-paid doctor to con dozens of educated professional women into marriage after persuading his brides to loan him money for an emergency, after which he disappeared. Said a police officer, he primarily did this for their money and some sexual pleasure. The Hindustan Times reported that police were flummoxed that Swain was so homely. Said the paper, this was no Don Juan. You know, we do have to correct something on this program, something we have aired on more than once. We're hoping to speak uh, next week to Stephen J. Harper. I'll list a little bit about Jenny Thomas and her husband, Clarence Thomas. But I'm sad to report, Mr. McMillan, that on more than one occasion, this correspondent has falsely reported to our listeners that back in 1991, when Clarence Thomas was up for certification, or what's the term they use? Confirmation for the Supreme Court, that among the 52 votes that put him on the court were those of Al Gore and Joe Lieberman. This was wrong. Al Gore and Joe Lieberman voted no on the confirmation of Clarence Thomas, as did Joe Biden, John Kerry, Ted Kennedy, Alan Cranston, Paul Wellstone, Bill Bradley, Lloyd Benson, Robert Berg, Jay Rockefeller, and Harry Reid, among other prominent Democrats. That 52 to 48 vote was along party lines, Democrats being no and Republicans saying yes, with a couple of exceptions. Two Republicans voted no, Packwood of Oregon and Jeffords of Vermont. Unfortunately for the country, 11 Democrats crossed party lines to vote yes for his confirmation. These were, these were generally Democrats from conservative states, Alabama, Arizona, Georgia, Illinois. Well, Illinois is not a conservative state, but Louisiana is. So is Nebraska, so is Oklahoma, so is South Carolina, and you know, take your pick on Virginia. Anyway, it's not a big deal, but we we do feel bad that we unfairly uh, criticized the judgment of Al Gore and Joe Lieberman. They did not vote to confirm Clarence Thomas, who has, well, remember when he he was confirmed back in 1991, he more or less told the public, get used to it. Get used to me. I'm going to be around a long time. And he is indeed currently the longest serving justice on the Supreme Court. In his opinion of this radio program, he's generally distinguished himself by being a boob. Up until a couple of years ago, he never asked questions during the presentations before the court. And he pretty reliably voted whichever way Antonine Scalia voted. In essence, when they put Clarence Thomas in the Supreme Court, they gave Antonine Scalia two votes. Clarence Thomas was not qualified to serve in the Supreme Court of the United States, but he squeaked by thanks to a brilliant playing of the race card by the Republicans. Thurgood Marshall, preceded Clarence Thomas, the Supreme Court. Thurgood Marshall was black. Thurgood Marshall was the first black man on the Supreme Court. Thurgood Marshall was a talented litigator. But when he stepped down, there was a call to replace him with another black man. Thurgood Marshall could have been replaced with any person who shared his liberal perspective. But during the first Bush administration, there was a call to replace him with someone who was black. The Republicans looked around and said, oh, you want a black guy? Hold on. <laughs> we can do that. Attorney Bill Simpich, who's been on this program in the past, uh, told me that he was well aware of Clarence Thomas long before he was uh, put on the Supreme Court for some really bad decisions floating around the country, courtesy of good old Clarence. I don't know the details on that, but maybe we'll bring Bill on, back on the show to talk about it. He's in a bit of hot water currently because of his wife's open political advocacy of the overthrow of the United States government for the benefit of Donald Trump and people who think like her. But like I say, we'll, we'll defer that to, to our talk with Stephen Harper. So if we're talking about race, and I guess we are, we should go out with um, one little viewpoint on racism. Racism. We talked in our last program with Isaac Fishstone about his book, *America Second. In that, he talked about how it is that the Chinese government loves it when Chinese people are abused in the U.S. because they can then credibly claim to represent the interests of Chinese people globally. Mr. Stonefish called for elected officials to change the names of, of places in the U.S. that might be deemed racist. He called upon elected officials in Sacramento to encourage them to raise awareness about renaming Chinaman Creek. Or he said better yet, push for the board of geographic names to expand the list of prohibited names to include Chinaman. Now, I have to agree that the term Chinaman could be used in a purely derogatory way. I suppose I suppose these days you could make the case for that, but generations ago it was not intended the way it is today, any more that I, I think, than the term Negro, which today is out of favor, was at one time the preferred term to describe people of color. You could argue that Chinaman is, is wielded with an intent to insult in a way that the terms Englishman and Irishman are not. But I don't know. A lot of Irish guys I know are a little bit sensitive about being called like an Irishman, pointing out that the term paddy wagon was originally meant as a disparaging term for how you rounded up drunk Irishmen on Saturday night were particularly fond on this program of the the wonderful tune Mad Dogs and Englishmen, which doesn't look favorably upon those of British descent, which does not paint a favorable picture of the Englishman. Gilbert and Sullivan had a pretty good tune along these lines. Hey. I'm right. Anyway, in closing, I want to note that uh, a friend of mine, an Irishman, recently sent me a text playing off a joke that's gone back and forth between us and between me and many others for many years, which is the simple line, surely not everybody was kung fu fighting. My friend sent me a follow-up text message saying that he, out of curiosity, he decided to look up the actual lyrics to Carl Douglas's immortal hit, Kung Fu Fighting. Here's what he sent me. Everybody is kung fu fighting. Your mind becomes fast as lightning. Though the future's a little bit frightening, it's the book of your life that you're writing. You're a diamond in the rough, a brilliant ball of clay. You could be a work of art, ha, if you just go all the way. Now, these are not the lyrics to Kung Fu Fighting. Here's the original words of that mega hit, which was actually one of the great hits of all time, reportedly. Reportedly, it was an international sensation. The actual lyrics are, everybody was kung fu fighting. Those kids were fast as lightning. In fact, it was a little bit frightening, but they fought with expert timing. There were funky Chinamen from funky Chinatown. They were chopping them up. They were chopping them down. You can see the problem here. There are people out there not amused with the phrase, funky Chinamen from funky Chinatown, and they set out to change it while they were at it, they changed. There was Funky Billy Chin and Little Sammy Chong. He said, here comes the big boss. Let's get it on. They changed it to, you're a natural, ooh. Why is it hard to see? Maybe it's just because you keep on looking at me. These are not improvements. We certainly agree with Isaac Stonefish that we, we just cannot tolerate racism. Be that as it may, leave Kung Fu fighting alone, okay? Oh, That about does it for this addendum program to Radio Parallax. The show is produced by Edward McMillan, who has, in the past, when it was necessary, fought with expert timing. In fact, it's a little bit frightening. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you soon. Everybody was kung fu.